Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, November 18th, 2020. On today's episode, we are going to be gathering at the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. So Peter is not here today, but uh, we're pressing on, guys. Let's let's jump into what we've been doing. HT, I think you're the only one who's been doing anything of note. What have you been up to recently? It's not really anything that exciting, but I'm going to try to pad this out for, you know, a fun look into my life. Uh, <laughs> one of which is I got uh, one of those, you know, uh, press swag boxes from HBO in promotion of His Dark Materials, and it actually contained, like, one of the cooler things I received, which is a telescope. It's not like a fancy telescope. It's essentially made of plastic, but I am really excited to not spy on my neighbors with this new telescope that I got from HBO. <laughs> is that code, HT? Are you actually spying on your neighbors? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. All right, then. Uh, does it work well? Like, sometimes those things are, like, you know, fun in uh, in theory, but kind of crappy in, in practice. What What is the um, the quality like of this telescope? I think it works. I put it together, and I'm not, I'm not a telescope expert, so I'm not sure if I put it together correctly. But uh, from what I can see, it does make things closer than they appear. All right. <laughs> Um, and in other news, my roommate, uh, my new roommate has a major baking hobby and she's baked quite a few things since she's arrived uh, in our apartment and um, it started to make me a little worried. So I have started to try to work out again. I kind of fell off after, you know, getting really into Chloe Ting's workouts during the summer and I've been inspired to try her an- another one of her challenges and I'm sore all over. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know i have delicious baked goods to um reward me for all my hard work yeah offsetting them and then instantly jumping back it sounds like a an, an interesting cycle that you're gonna be trapped in for a little while yes uh all right let's jump into what we've been reading ht what have you been reading recently uh I've talked a little bit about my um, Books of Earthsea collection by Ursula K. Le Guin, and I adore this comically large tome that I have and have been slowly making my way through the books that I haven't read, which are most of them. I've only read Wizard of Earthsea and uh, Tombs of Achuan. And I guess part of the reason why I never really got into the other books was because I was so attached to the protagonist of Tombs of Achuan, um, and I didn't really want to read other books that like featured uh, mostly uh, the character from Wizard of R.C. Jed and were kind of, and he's like a supporting character and they're told from the perspective of other protagonists. And I was like, oh, I don't really care about these new guys. But I started to read uh, The Farthest Shore, which is the third book in the Earthsea series. And um, I just got to say, I really love fantasy maps. This is a um, a book that is very much about that world building uh and um, exploration of Earthsea itself because it's it follows this young prince from one of the isles of Earthsea who is tasked to accompany Jed, uh, now the archmage of of um, Roke, yes, of, of Roke, uh, to go on this quest to discover why magic is disappearing in the far reaches of the of the world, and um, it's basically a big sailing book which I always really enjoy in fantasy books I can't really explain why but I always really like to read them and then like go back to the the atlas that this author has drawn and like see where they've gone the geography is just really exciting for me in in fantasy books so it's um it's really great and um I'm really enjoying it so far I think I'm about halfway through um the farthest shore and um yeah I love Ursula K. Le Guin's writing it's just so um rich and um transporting and uh i um i also like the sort of darker elements that this book is bringing in especially about uh the tra- the potential travels into the land of the dead uh, which is also another favorite uh fantasy element of mine so it's it's really it's really great so far and that's the farthest shore um from ursula k Le Guin's Earthsea series uh something you mentioned there reminded me of a book that i read when i was a kid have you ever read the chronicles of narnia of series? course okay so the voyage of the dawn treader yeah. um the there's so much like sea seafaring action and swashbuckling and stuff like that in that book that's what instantly uh was called to mind when you were talking about that so i was hoping that you had read that one that's actually my sort of reference point when i was reading the farthest shore i'm like oh it's like the voyages of the dawn treader from chronicles of narnia <laughs> so if you like voyages of the dawn, dawn treader from chronicles of narnia you will like the farthest shore and uh just shout out to chronicles of narnia my first fantasy series uh when i was 
growing up. And um, even though I really dislike how it treats Susan, it's still a series that I, I, is, I hold deep in my heart. Yeah, I would I would say for uh, anybody who maybe has heard of that series, maybe watched the movies that came out, whatever, 10 years ago, and but has never actually read the books, um, get through the first book uh, chronologically, which is The Magician's Nephew. That one is like it's so different than all of the other ones and, and really almost has like nothing to do with the whole rest of the series. But um, things really sort of kick into gear with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, because so, Lion, the um, Witch, and the Wardrobe, to make the segue longer, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the first book that C.S. Lewis wrote in this series. And then he, uh, I think he continued with Prince Caspian and then kind of went back to create the prequel, The Magician's Nephew, as well as sort of the offshoot, which is the third book. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Ooh, it's been a while since I've read the books. Uh, the Silver Chair, maybe? No, no, I don't Silver Chair is the sixth one. Oh, okay. It has <laughs> yeah, to, it's been a while. It, the third one is the one that has like a lot of uncomfortable racial coding. Mm-hmm. Um, but great series. Um, and um, oh, I'm gonna, I don't want to go to really much longer, but it's big, very, really heavy on its biblical allegories, which is something that uh, C.S. Lewis's friend, Jared Token, really disliked, despite, despite Token being the more religious of the two. Um, so Sorry, all the lore about fantasy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah. Fun, and fun I, I just really like wanted to, you know, point out like if anybody comes to that series fresh, not knowing any of that information, like the magician's nephew is, is numbered one of seven, I think. Mm-hmm. And if you read it in that order, it's just uh, it, you might be like, this is what everybody's talking about. But it's really like the the remaining books that people yeah. are really excited about. Fun fact, I actually read Prince Caspian first when I started reading the Chronicles of Narnia series. And I was like, this is a great book and i realized there was a whole series and i went oh, back wow. to lion wish in the wardrobe and then i just kind of i bought the whole collection and just kind of read the entire thing so that seems kind of like a cool entry point like or, or really at least cool a cool discovery point. like liking something and being like wow there's an entire separate world that's associated with this it's that's very cool. like the more like the death of arthur kind of thing where you ha- have these characters come into this world where uh they have their legends and it's like two hundreds of years later it's a really cool entry point yeah. Okay. Uh, so enough, enough flying the witch in the wardrobe, Narnia talk. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll talk about what I've been reading recently. Um, a Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. This is a, uh, I guess, a, an extended essay. It's a, maybe a collection of essays, um, all of one topic. And it's basically just this, uh, um, this is the first uh, piece of writing by Virginia Woolf that I've ever read. And it's essentially just um, sort of making the case for uh, women as writers. This was published in 1929, and it, it's just it sort of like tracks the history of of women writers and um, and talks about how important education was, and like sort of uh, lays out the societal barriers that uh, existed and and to a degree still exist. That's one of the things that I, I found um, most interesting about reading this book now is that it was published so long ago, but so many of the things that it, it feels very modern because. Unfortunately, so many of the, the um, yeah, those barriers to to success that she was talking about seem to still be, um, you know, uh, seems to still exist in our current uh, society. So um, maybe certainly not to the the same degree that they did in the late twenties, but um, it just it definitely um, was sort of an eye opening experience. And um, like she talks about uh, going back in time a little bit, she talks about like, what if uh, William Shakespeare had a sister who was, you know, just as brilliant as he was, and she traces this this fictional sister and, and sort of tracks what might have happened to this character 
you know, in that time in England and uh, the societal pressures and, and um, you know, requirements of women at, the, at that time. And just like basically draws this really stark contrast of like, you know, even if she was equally brilliant or maybe even more brilliant than than William Shakespeare was, there's no way that she would have been able to sort of thrive in a literary sense in that time. And like it, it the entire uh book, essay, whatever you want to call it, really just, um, you know, it, it's like this, uh, this cry into the night of like, think about all of the, um, the great works that we were never, uh, you know, <laughs> we're never privy to because of these, um, these societal institutions and, and sort of barriers that have been placed around women. So uh, it's, it was an illuminating read for me anyway. And it's, uh, it's very short. It's very good. It's called A Room of One's Own. If you want to check that out. Uh, I would encourage you to do so. Um, Brett, what have you been reading? Uh, I received uh, an advanced copy of The Art of the Mandalorian Season 1, uh, which is the the latest in the, the long history of uh, art books from the Star Wars movies. Uh, this one's also written by Phil Shostak, who did the previous art, art uh, books for Force Awakens, Last Jedi, Rise of Skywalker, and Solo. Um, and since this covers, uh, you know, an entire season of The Mandalorian, um, which is basically the length of, you know, two Star Wars movies, um, it's it's a pretty meaty book. It's it's not much bigger than the the movie books, but there's tons of awesome artwork in here. Um, there's some, you know, breakdowns and insights for for each episode. I unfortunately I, I found that a lot of the the extra information in the book that normally would probably be a um, you know would reveal interesting th- tidbits from behind the scenes was actually mostly covered in the uh, Disney gallery show, um, the Mandalorian, which, you know, chronicled the making of the series with uh, behind the scenes footage and all that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, with these books, it's really the art that is, you know, what people are most excited to see. And so there's a lot of different incarnations of the Mandalorian's look and um, this, you know, how development essentially began where they were using, uh, Boba Fett as kind of uh, a marker for what the character was going to, to be like before they really started to figure out how to make the identity of this character different. Um, of all the different characters that have different, you know, designs. There's a little bit more detail, something we learned from the Mandalorian series about how Carl Weathers character Grief Karga was, you know, originally um, supposed to be an, an alien character and, and he would have been in full makeup. And it's actually revealed in the book that the, the specific alien race he was was supposed to be um, a weak way, which is one of the characters that was in Return of the Jedi and recently appeared in an episode of The Mandalorian season two. Um, so it's just, you know, it, for anyone who loves these kinds of books that reveal, uh, you know, just the concept art and all the the thoughts that went into creating the world that you see in The Mandalorian, it's it's a great glimpse into, uh, you know, the making of the show and just uh, the various ideas that didn't make it to screen. Cool. Do you think that it would work as like a you know, I, I, for me, I, I feel like a lot of these books are sort of like coffee table books. Like, you know, you just put them out and flip through them. You know, it, it's not really a book that you dive into to read every single word. Is this kind of in that same vein as well? For the most part, um, they're like uh, the way the book is broken down. Aside from like uh, talking about the inception of the series, each episode gets a section um, where there's roughly like. I don't know, maybe like eight paragraphs uh, specifically about that episode that, um, well, you know, like I said, dive into a lot of the stuff that was revealed in the Disney Gallery documentary series. But the cool thing about what what accompanies the art is um, all the, they're each like 
photo usually has some kind of caption that explains more detail from the artists about like what they were thinking and why they designed something a certain way or what cha- mm. what changed you know from the production process to the final version of the character and that kind of thing. So it's definitely still one of those books where like you you mostly just finger through it and glance at it, but if you take the time to like sit and read you know the the caption stuff like that, then you'll you'll learn some cool things. Cool. And that, so that, and that comes out on uh, December first. So. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Um, okay, let's jump into what we've been watching. Uh, Chris, you and I watched Run, which is the new film from Anish Chiganti, the guy who directed Searching a couple years ago. What did you think about Run? Um, it's it's pretty good. Uh, it's you know it's very intense. It, it never really lets up. Um, the, the the actors are are really good. Uh, I really liked that. Um, they actually cast you know an actress in a wheelchair to play someone in a wheelchair. I thought that you know that's that's a really big step even though it shouldn't be it is a big step um but i also feel like it kind of and i hate using this phrase because it makes it sound like i'm trying to do a pun but i'm not but it kind of runs out of steam at the end (laughs) and uh you know it's like up you know all the way up until like the last i'd say like 20 minutes i was like oh this is great and then the last 20 minutes it's like oh never mind so it's you know i i recommend it It's, it's worth seeing but i liked um I liked searching much more than, than I feel like searching stuck the landing more than this. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, uh, and searching is like one of my favorite thrillers of the decade, just because it does so many interesting things with the, the form and, and, um, you know, the, the story itself feels like something you haven't quite seen like as many times as the story in run, which feels like a little bit more familiar and, and, um, is definitely purposeful. Like he, the director like wanted to make something more um, like classical in its storytelling. And it, it feels that way. It feels like a story that you sort of can predict, you know, some of the beats as they're about to happen, but it's really like all about the execution. And I think there are a lot of really good, really strong scenes in this. And, and, you know, in terms of the execution, I was right there with you. I thought that, you know, it was, it was tense all the way through. It was like, it hit those moments and and those things. And even if they were a little bit predictable, it was all satisfying until, yeah, maybe like the very, very end for me where it's sort of like, um, (laughs) I don't know, fell apart seems like a little bit too strong. It just didn't, it it didn't quite uh, live up to the promise of the rest of the movie, I thought. Um, And maybe we can talk about that more like later on, once more people have seen it, we can do like a little spoilery thing or something like that. But um, this movie comes out on Hulu uh, this Friday, so it'll be accessible for for Hulu subscribers to to check out soon. So um, if you want to read more about the making of the movie, I interviewed the director and uh, the producer, Natalie Kasabian. um, And so we'll have uh, some interviews and uh, going up at slashfilm.com for the rest of this week we'll have i think one piece going up tomorrow and then like a piece about all the fun easter eggs and cameos and stuff like that that are in the movie that will go up on friday after the movie is accessible to everybody so uh that is called run it's coming to hulu this week uh jacob what have you been watching i'm weeks late to it but i finally watched bill and ted face the music (laughs) two months after everybody else did and uh, I really liked it. And this is a weird case for me because I did not see the Bill and Ted movies growing up. I saw them for the first time as an adult. I watched the first two within the, in the past year. So this is not a case where I had nostalgia or warm feelings from my childhood. And I enjoyed the first two movies, but I didn't love them. I've, and maybe that's why I think Bill and Ted Face Music is the best of them. I think it feels the most well-made. Uh, it feels... It's had the 
chance to sort of luxuriate into into people's responses to the original, which is how they responded to the kindness of them while sort of chafing at some more dated elements. So this one's able to double down on the kindness while removing the elements that make modern viewers like me go, eh. Uh, so I'm curious for you guys, especially those of you who have a longer life with these movies. Am I a crazy person for thinking Face the Music is the best one of the bunch? I mean, I still I have not seen any of them, but what are you going to say, Chris? I don't want to call my boss crazy, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a fun movie. But I think I'm I think Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is the best of them all. But I also realize that's kind of like a weird opinion, too. So it's okay to be different. Let's all try and be different. Thank you. That's what Bill and Ted teaches at the end of the day. <laughs> kind of. Um, I, uh, I, I won't say it's the best of the bunch, but I do agree with you that it uh, definitely doubles down on the kindness factor of the first two movies. I think I also will agree that I, I really like how weird Bogus Journey is. Um, so I, but I did really enjoy Bill and Ted Face the Music, and I think that it's it's a, a lot of fun, and I like how sweet and nice it is. Brad, where do you fall in this whole thing? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that uh, Face the Music is the best, and I think I'm probably going to be the one who says that um, Excellent Adventure is still the best one. Um, but yeah, you know, like you said, every, everybody's different, and much like HT too. I also, you know, loved Bill and Ted Face the Music. I, I feel like against all odds. It really just works so well, and you know, and I think that Face the Music has an even bigger heart than the previous two movies, which are more so played as stoner comedies, even though Bill and Ted aren't actually stoners. Um, but it's yeah, I, I think that there Bill and Ted Face the Music does some things better than the first two movies, but I think the first two movies are better the, uh, um, as a whole. All right, the last thing I'll say about this is I was out of the loop for the Bill and Ted Face Music conversation because I had not seen it. So tell me if this has already been said or if I'm an outlier here. Is Dennis Caleb McCoy the best new character of 2020? <laughs> uh, I love Dennis. I was just like laughing out loud at everything he said. So yeah, I yes, I love Dennis so much. The insecure robot is just like, such a great, invention yeah i definitely don't have an argument against it so <laughs> yeah if we made if we had a list of uh an end of year list 2020 is a weird year for whatever yearly wrap-up stuff we're going to do because so many things are delayed and the film landscape was so strange this year uh but if we are to do our best moments of the year list if that still happens i hope we can make it work uh there will be a tight run for choosing which dennis caleb mccoy line or scene i will choose to fight for <laughs> on that list <laughs> All right. Uh, I also watched uh, the first six episodes of The Crown season four. I'm savoring it like a fine wine. I am not rushing through it. I've spoken about this before, uh, even last week. But The Crown is the kind of show that I wish Netflix would make more often, which is each episode stands alone, which makes it more inherently bingeable. I mean, there's a reason why Breaking Bad is easier and more fun to binge than most Netflix originals, because Breaking Bad was designed to be watched week to week. And there's a, a tension there that, you know, the show wants you to come back next week, not in 10 seconds. So Netflix shows are so lazy about how, we're just going to end it here because you can click play right away. And that just leads to unsatisfying watching, whereas The Crown acts like it's on HBO. It acts like it's on FX. It acts like it's on AMC. It, it pretends, it's structure-wise, that you have to wait a week between episodes, which means each episode's a full meal. Each episode uh, requires some reflection to fully appreciate. 
and makes it so much more re- rewatchable. I've rewatched The Crown, where I have not rewatched most of the Netflix originals because they don't demand it the way The Crown does. And Chris spoke at length about this last week, so I won't go into detail, but it's a really excellent season. It's a dark season. Uh, the show's depictions of Princess Diana and Margaret Thatcher are both excellent and uncanny, and I am trying not to rush through it. It is a great, great <laughs> goddamn TV show. And I've said it before, I said it again, uh, Ben, Brad, HT, I would like you to give this show a shot because it's not the show you think it is. It's exceptionally good. I, okay. I'm really tempted to just watch season four because I really want to watch the Diana stuff. But I know I will enjoy the season just by how much you've been talking about it or the whole series as a whole. So but here's I'll, why I'll, you can I'll, do that, though. David Chen, friend of the site, host of the Slash Filmcast, uh, he said on Twitter he watched season four first and loved it. And because the show is so, each episode stands alone as its own short story. You can do this HD. If you want to watch it out of order, you can. I would encourage it even. Watch season four, then go back for the flashbacks. Oh. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move to you, HD. What have you been watching recently? I watched The Red Shoes on HBO Max. And I've been wanting to watch this movie for a while um, just because I love ballet and I love color. And I have never seen a, actually a Palin Pressburger movie before um and this was my first introduction to them and wow do they also love ballet and color um there's just this movie's just bursting with that technicolor richness that you can only really get from that technology and um it feels so much more um i guess like evolved than a lot of the films of the 1940s coming from the british film industry and um it actually was like not really aware of Palin Pressburger standing in cinematic um, history, I guess, until recently when you guys were talking about Black Narcissus. And I realized that they were the same directors of The Red Shoes, who, which I just had always been intending to watch. And um, it kind of astonished me that they were not really appreciated in their times, especially seeing The Red Shoes. And it's really rich and complex vision of um, not only that technicolor palette that it has, but also its uh, interplay of... Um, passion and the classic melodramatic conflict between uh ambition and love slash family and uh it's it's a it's a very like tragic almost russian literature type of conflict which i really enjoyed um but i just love watching every frame of this movie and you know that ballet sequence that it's famous for uh that lasts i think 15 minutes long is just so surreal and impressionistic and astonishing to watch i was uh blown away by it so the red shoes on hbo max have any of you guys seen the red shoes oh yeah it's amazing and everybody has their favorite pal on pressburger my personal favorite is a matter of life and death but you can't go wrong with any of them every every film they made together as a directing duo is astonishing uh so i would recommend a matter of life and death next i know ben and chris may recommend their own suggested next which i hope they'll say right now um, man, I, I mean, I, if you haven't seen Black Narcissus, I, I really uh, enjoyed that recently. But I also really loved A Matter of Life and Death. Um, the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp was was another one that I watched like within the past year or two that, that I <laughs> found to be really fascinating. That one's like pretty long, if I remember right. Um, and I, I still am like personally going through their whole filmography and, and trying to like, uh, ch- you know, absorb as, as much of that stuff as I can because I, I loved pretty much everything that I've seen so far. I, I watched um, I Know Where I'm Going and wasn't a huge fan of that one. But um, Chris, did you have any uh, 
any suggestions here? Black Narcissist is my is my favorite of the bunch. I just I just love how just <laughs> that movie is a lot to to quote the kids, and uh, <laughs> I just I just love that movie. So yeah, that, that would be my pick. Yeah, I saw um, the Red Shoes for the first time. I think it was almost exactly ten years ago um, because um, Darren Aronofsky talked about it in a bunch of interviews in the lead up to Black Swan about how it was a big influence on him, and I had never. That was my first Powell and Pressburger movie, and I'd never heard of The Red Shoes or, or anything. And I watched it and was just sort of like, yeah, same as you, Ishii, like blown away by especially the, the use of color and just like the, um, it, it's almost like a, a form of like extreme filmmaking, even though it, that, you know, in these, in the in the parlance of today, that conjures images of like, you know, snowboarding and whatever the hell. But it, it really just seems, um, it, it seems so much more full of life and, and just, uh, in your face than a lot of the movies of that time period, like you were saying. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a fantastic watch. And that's one of the reasons I love HBO max so much. It just has so many classic movies like that, that are buried in there. I was talking to my mom last night and she was like, yeah, I have HBO max. And like, she hadn't really gone through much of it and like, didn't even know that it had, you know, all of the, the different hubs and stuff. And I was like, you know, it has, you know, 10,000 hours of content, right? Like there's so many great classics. So I, I hope anybody listening to this who has HBO max, you know, whether it's just a, a sort of uh, as an add-on from their their cable subscription, if, if you still have it, or if you uh, subscribe to it but haven't gone through it, I hope you you really like take a few minutes to to just like search through the archives there because there's so much great stuff on that streaming service in particular. Yeah, so. I honestly think HBO Max has the best collection of like library titles of all the streaming services or all the major streaming services uh, apart from the Criterion Channel, and uh, it's just there's just so much to it. Like they have. They have the TCM stuff, they have Ghibli, they have um, all the DC stuff, and it's just, it's amazing, and kind of, it's a shame that people are missing out on it, because they're like, oh yeah, just watch all the, I don't know, HBO stuff that they have on there, but it's, they have a lot of stuff, Um, and anime too. Oh yeah. Um, is is uh, the next movie that you're about to talk about, is that also on HBO Max? Yes, it is. I, I was just browsing HBO Max looking for movies to watch. And um, I've, been kind of, I've been kind of wanting to participate in Noir-vember. Um, I've been doing it sort of sporadically, though. But I decided to watch uh, one of the most famous noirs, The Maltese Falcon, which I'd never seen before. And uh, being a big bogey fan, I, it kind of, I kind of just missed the boat on this one. And... Um, it's great. <laughs> I have really nothing. I feel like I have nothing else to add about the Maltese Falcon that hasn't already been said and much more eloquent, eloquently than me. Um, it's directed by John Huston. It features Humphrey Bogart in a real, just one of his like, iconic roles. He's so good in it. He's so suave. He's, he's a little bit, he, he laughs a lot more than I've seen him laugh in a lot of his films, which was kind of disconcerting for me. But um, I really liked him as a Sam Spade, who was um, uh, just like, you know, a classic noir, L.A. noir detective. And um, I, it's, it's got a lot of twists and turns in it, many of which just caught me off guard. And uh, I also love Peter Lore. I recently wrote about in my quarantine stream Peter Lore in um, The Man Who Knew Too Much and he's so good in that movie and I was a little disappointed that he is le- a little bit less of a figure in um, The Maltese Falcon he's very much a supporting character and um, I do like his performance though and I will say Christoph Waltz owes a lot of his just sort of persona to Peter Lore in The Maltese Falcon <laughs> um, but yeah Maltese Falcon great movie <laughs> 
Man, it's so, so good. I would recommend um, it, with this movie so fresh in your mind, rewatching or watching for the first time. I don't know if we've talked about this or not, if you've seen uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much, uh, like this movie in particular, I know it was it was heavily inspired by, um, you know, Dashiell Hammett and, and the Raymond Chandler and a lot of these types of movies. But I think the Maltese Falcon specifically, like the, you can watch this and then Brick back to back and see a lot of the the uh you know shared dna there so yeah brick um, is great it's a good double feature is it streaming anywhere i i love brick i haven't <sighs> seen it in a while i remember when it was streaming on netflix and that's when i first watched it yeah i don't know i'll have to check on that um but while i do that let's go to chris what have you been watching recently uh what do i have here oh i finally watched uh, the new mutants because they they sent me the blu-ray and Wow, what a what a nothing movie this is. Um, <laughs> I was really hoping, you know, despite all the delays, I was like, maybe this will be, you know, uh, something that was underrated. Maybe, you know, the studio just didn't know what to do with it. And it's actually something interesting. But no, it's it's really just bland. Like it's, I hate when people say, you know, nothing happens in this movie, but really nothing happens in this movie. Like, it's like, an hour and a half of just, you know, the new mutants just walking around this very boring hospital set. And then the last like 20 minutes, there's a bunch of CGI action. It's just, it's just bad. It's a bad movie. And uh, what a, what an ignoble end to the, the, the Fox X-Men franchise. Like this is how they ended it with, with just this really shitty barely barely coherent uh, attempt at like a teen horror i don't even know what this movie is it sucks let me just leave it at that it's a bad movie what a piece of shit anyway the new mutants <laughs> but chris how, is it worse the worse than dark phoenix which is a truly terrible movie i actually didn't see dark phoenix so that's i i did see x-men apocalypse which is i guess worse than this because at least in the new mutants, there's not a scene where they go to Auschwitz and <laughs> they like tear the fence up, which was just a really uh, shocking scene to exist in any sort of film. So I guess this is better than that, but uh, yeah, I can't comment if this is worse than um, dark Phoenix. Cause I didn't bother to see that. Chris, as your editor, I'm assigning you a uh, article. You need to rewatch and rank all the X-Men movies. Oh uh, so God. you can get to the bottom of this. Uh, <laughs> all right. Sure. Oh man. Um, uh, Chris, uh, damn! I just had a question about the New Mutants, and I cannot remember what it was. So I'm just going it's to bad. pretend. It's a bad that... movie. So don't, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing you can ask me oh, will change. I remember. Uh, does it make? Uh, I think is it Josh Green? Is that the director of Josh of... Boone? Josh Boone. Excuse me. Um, he is, I think, behind the upcoming uh, CBS All Access version of The Stand. Right? Uh, I think he directed like the pilot, the first episode. Okay, and he might be involved with some of the writing of it or something yeah. like that, or the de- de- development of it or something. Right, yeah, I, yeah. I was just wondering if um, if <laughs> the New Mutants put such a bad taste in your mouth that you're now like a little worried about The Stand, because I know that's a, a Stephen King book that you really love, but um, I'm, or I'm, if you sort of think that this might be like, uh, just like, you know, there, there's too much, too many cooks in the kitchen, like the whole thing about it being a Fox movie and caught up in the Disney thing. And there's like, you know, there's so many uh, studio politics that go into making a big superhero movie. I'm worried about the stand based on the footage I've seen of the stand, which looks really boring and flat and not at all interesting. And 
uh, you know, that, that sh- I know it's a TV adaptation, but that's, you know, that's an epic story. And it really looks like the whole thing is shot in like medium close-ups of people like in Georgia. And it just, it just looks like shit. So I, I have very little, uh, faith in how the stand is going to turn out. So even if I hadn't seen new mutants, I would still be like, wow, that looks like shit. So <laughs> all right well hopefully the next thing you're going to talk about is is better question mark uh yeah so i watched i also watched uh ma rainey's black bottom which is um it's a new netflix movie it's coming out soon and of course it's the it's the, like one of the last performances of of chadwick boseman and um this movie is man it's okay like the acting is phenomenal uh chadwick boseman is really good in this and it's it's gonna remind it's it's like a it made me like a little, you know, uh, sad, you know, everything makes me sad these days, but this made me <laughs> a, a little extra sad just cause it's a reminder of like, man, this guy was so damn talented and he had so much more to give, you know, the movies and we're never going to get that now. And he's just so good in this. And, uh, Viola Davis is good in it. You know, every, everyone is doing really good stuff, but, um, the problem with this is, it, you know, it's an adaptation of an August Wilson play and, you know, the, the dialogue, you know, pulled from the play is, you know, phenomenal, but it's very stagey. Like it's, it's poorly directed. I want to say, because it just, it feels very much like you're watching a play and that's fine if you're actually watching a play, but it doesn't work if you're, you know, watching a movie and, you know, the whole movie is literally just people sitting around in, in a, it's basically like two different rooms and they're just talking. And again, that works great on the stage because, you know, that's, that's how plays work. That's how the stage is set up, but you need more than that when you're, you're watching a film. And, you know, I don't want to call this a bad movie because it's not because the performances alone make this worth watching, but I, I wish they had brought in or I wish they had just like, I don't want to say change it up a bit because, you know, they're, they're, pulling from the August Wilson material and you know that's great as it is but I know there's a better way to tell this story than how it's it's told in the film uh in that regard how would you compare it to something like Fences which I think Denzel Washington directed that was from 2016 I want to say which is also based on an August Wilson play right yeah and uh Denzel Washington produced this too um and it's sort of similar in that way I do think I did remember a lot of people saying Fences was a little too stagey too and I sort of agree, but it felt better made, I guess I want to say. I don't know. I don't know if like just because a lot of maybe it's like the settings because a lot of fences is is outdoors. It's characters outdoors and that sort of opens it up a lot. Whereas this is a lot of just people in very small rooms. And mm. I, I kind of think that's what contributes to making it feel like you're watching a filmed play. And so mm-hmm. I, I do think you know, between those two films, Fences is probably the better film, but um, this is definitely worth seeing just for Chadwick Boseman's performance alone is definitely worth watching. And when does that come to Netflix? Do you have the date in front of you? Uh, November 25th. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Uh, And then just a a quick update. Uh, Brick is not streaming anywhere. You can rent it at a bunch of different places, all the usual suspects right now, but uh, I have to add an update too. So November 25th is the limited theatrical release. And then December 18th is when the Ma Rainey's Black Bottom comes to Netflix. Okay, cool. Uh, Brad, let's go to you. What have you been watching recently? Um, I recently watched a new documentary called The Orange Years, 
um, which is a chronicle of the rise of Nickelodeon as the uh, first cable network for kids. Um, it takes a look at how uh, Nickelodeon came to be from its earliest origins before it even had the name Nickelodeon when it was part of this uh, interactive cable kind of experiment called Cube where people could uh, vote on different surveys and things like that to interact with the, the talk shows that were on TV. Um, and it evolved from uh, being a channel on that system into the, you know, this huge cable network that had some of the most influential programming, you know, for children of the 90s. Um, and what it really focuses on is from the, the beginning of the channel through its uh, innovation from Geraldine Laybourne, who is the woman who is uh, famously credited for driving Nickelodeon and really finding all these talented people to bring these shows to Nickelodeon and turn it into this just huge, you know, cable giant uh, at a time when there really wasn't a, an entire channel that was dedicated to kids. This was, you know, before uh, Cartoon Network and, you know, and the Disney channel wasn't even, you know, quite, quite as big at, at this time. And it's just a, a, a great look back at how all these shows came to be. It talks to various creators, stars of the shows, uh, all the key behind the scenes uh, executives who were who were there at the time when it was just gaining steam and getting bigger and bigger. And it's it's a pretty formulaic documentary. You know, it has all um, standard talking heads and it cuts to archival footage and clips from the shows and that kind of thing. But for someone like me who grew up as a Nickelodeon kid, uh, you know, hearing all these behind the scenes anecdotes and interesting details for, uh, of the origins of the shows and how they came to Nickelodeon, it's just a really fun uh, watch that's informative and has, you know, just the perfect amount of nostalgia. And it also goes right up to the point when Geraldine Laybourne uh, left Nickelodeon, which is, in my opinion, when the it kind of started to go downhill. Not that they haven't done good things at Nickelodeon since then, because obviously big shows like SpongeBob SquarePants and uh, Avatar The Last Airbender and, and whatnot have come out of there. But there was just this, this unique period, you know, from the, the mid-80s through the mid nineties where Nickelodeon was um, like several people say in the documentary, it's like the inmates were running the asylum. They kind of let creators do what they wanted to do. And that's why we got all these original, unique creator driven shows like Doug and Rugrats um, and you know, the live action stuff like Clarissa explains it all. And so it's uh, yeah, for, for, like I said, for anyone who loved Nickelodeon growing up, or maybe isn't even familiar with, you know, all the stuff that happened with Nickelodeon, uh, it's definitely worth watching. And that's uh, it's available uh, to rent or buy on iTunes right now. Did they talk a lot about Doug? That was my favorite of those shows in that era. So each uh, show that was kind of part of Nickelodeon's early rise um, to fame and what made them big gets, I would say, like maybe four or five minutes of of screen time. And so they do talk about uh, Doug for, for a little bit. And one of the more fascinating parts of the documentary, actually, which I, I didn't know, was how uh, Jim Jenkins found the voice for Patty Mayonnaise, um, which which is an interesting story, which I won't spoil, and I will let people find out in the movie. All right, awesome. What else have you been watching? Um, I also watched the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special. Um, for those who somehow don't know, uh, Star Wars famously had a terrible, awful, abysmal holiday special that aired on CBS back in 1978 uh, in between Star Wars New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. And it somehow has the all the main major cast members from the show, including Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, uh, even James Earl Jones as Darth Vader. And it's this you know, just ter a terrible thing. And so the idea of a new holiday special was is, you know, a bit concerning. But because this is an animated Lego Star Wars holiday special, 
Uh, it allows them to have fun without really sullying the Star Wars mythology. Um, it uses a, a plot device that is reminiscent of uh, Avengers Endgame and Back to the Future and It's a Wonderful Life that allows uh, Ray to time hop to various famous points in the franchise and mix characters up and cross them over in a way that you would never, ever get to see in live action Star Wars. And, and it's done in this, you know, uh, delightfully goofy, you know, uh, cheesy kind of way because it's Lego Star Wars. If you've ever played any of the Lego Star Wars video games or seen any of the animated shorts, you know what you're getting into here. And so it's it's something that is, you know, silly enough and, uh, and entertaining for, for kids, but it has some fun Star Wars, uh, you know, Easter eggs and like winks and nods that make jokes at the the expense of some of the silly things in the franchise. And uh, it's, it's pretty enjoyable, you know. It, it's not something that you're going to have your mind blown about, but it's just something that's fun, especially to watch around the holidays and if you have kids who need to be distracted for a little bit. And, and it only is 47 minutes, which is half of the length of the uh, act- absolutely terrible original Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> and on, on that note, actually, in preparation to watch this, and because I interviewed Anthony Daniels, I went back and watched the original Star Wars holiday special. And not only did I forget, I, I watched it once before in college, um, and I don't didn't remember a lot of it. I think it might because I was under the influence of some things. But the it's an hour and a half, and my God, is it the worst thing imaginable? It it <laughs> it drags. It's stupid. Like the the sets look cheap. Uh, all of the Wookies are just weird. There's a there's a scene where Art Carney is this like shop owner, and he brings. Uh, this special, like, virtual program to play for, um, I don't know if, I don't remember if it's Chewbacca's dad or if it's his wife's wife's father who lives with them, but he sits in this chair and it's this, like, uh, not so vaguely erotic kind of virtual reality thing that he's experiencing, and it's, oh, it is just the, the weirdest, stupidest thing, and, like, I don't know what, what's going on with Mark Hamill, he looks like he's wearing, like, five pounds of stage makeup, uh, it's just, man, I mean, it's tough to watch even just for like the hilarity of seeing how bad, bad it is. Um, but yeah, so it, it, that's on YouTube. Uh, all you have to do is just search for it. And like, there's someone has the full copy out there and it's for what it is because it's recorded from television. It's pretty decent. Um, but yeah, man, it is, uh, whew, that is rough. <laughs> I was going to say, I would be very surprised if that was like, uh, officially available on Disney plus considering how terrible its reputation is, but <laughs> you got to go to YouTube for that one. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's no official copy of that available. George Lucas made sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else have you been watching, Brad? Uh, and then I watched, um, a handful of episodes from the revival of Animaniacs that's coming to Hulu on Friday, November 20th. Uh, they Hulu made five episodes available, but not the first five episodes. Um, they included uh, the first episode, and then the the second episode, the fourth episode, the eighth episode, and the tenth episode. Weird choice. Uh, yeah, I, and I don't know if it's just because that's the showcase of what they thought was going to be the best from this first season, um, or you know, or what what it is. But you know, with Animaniacs, it's not a, a show that has any serial arc or carryover of continuity. It's just a collection of animated shorts featuring uh, the Warner Brothers and the, the Warner Sister Dot and Pinky and the Brain. And I, I was very, very pleased with how this revival uh, turned out. It, it has the same uh, spirit and comedic style as the original Animaniacs. The, the animation hasn't been like modernized in any way to, to be more contemporary. Um, it's just just has this, you know, 
classic feel of exactly the same way that the original Animaniacs did. All the original voice actors are back. There is a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say controversy, but just disappointment from fans because they didn't bring back any of the original writers or the, the series creator, um, T- Tom Huger, I want I think that's how you pronounce his name. But it is, um, it, it still does a great job of capturing the, the meta comedy and sort of the um, all the satire of pop culture and politics, Every, everything from the original series is here. And uh, the episodes that I saw never quite match up to how good the the premiere is of this um, the new season, because the way the animatics come back, they do a whole song about you know catching up on the past twenty two years, and then also they have a second song about reboot culture, and it's just a lot of fun, Pl- plenty of you know just great pop culture references and jokes that don't feel like, you know, they're, they're trying to make Animaniacs anything more than what it was from, from the past. And so, yeah, I I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm super excited to see how much more they can do with this because it's, it doesn't have that feel of where most reboots or revivals do where they, they feel forced to, you know, updating it for a new, new audience. It is exactly what you want, you know, from, bringing the series back it doesn't even feel like it left like it feels like they just like took a long break and they're like oh we should probably make more episodes of this hmm. um so yeah I, there's a whole review i have on uh online i will say that the one thing that people might find disappointing is that uh with the exception of pinky and the brain um none of the other supporting characters from the show that had their own shorts in the original series come back for uh at least in the episodes that were shown or uh given to the press. I did see that in an episode description of one that wasn't provided to us that uh, the character Dr. Scratch and Sniff is involved somehow, but otherwise they haven't brought back anybody else. So I don't know if there's a, they're waiting to see how people react to this first season and maybe they'll bring those characters back in the um, like a season two, which has already been ordered, or if that's just something they decided to leave behind and focus on, you know, what were essentially the two most successful parts of the original series. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did introduce a new uh, one new short with two new characters called um, Starbucks and Cindy. And it focuses on an, uh, a little kind of like action figure sized alien who is supposed to be coming to Earth to like prepare it for uh, being invaded by the rest of his species. But he gets picked up by a little girl and just turns him into like basically a toy that she keeps playing with and he keeps trying to escape. And so I don't know if that, that, that only appears once in um, the episodes that I watched and it didn't seem to ha- uh, be in any of the other episodes as far as the descriptions provided for those episodes. Hmm. So I don't know if that's something that they also plan to come back in the future, if they were experimenting with it or what. But um, otherwise, if you if you love the Warners and you love Pinky in the Brain, you're going to get exactly what you want with this revival. And when does that come to Hulu? November 20th, this Friday. Okay, cool. Uh, I watched on HBO Max a room with a view, um, not to be confused with a room of one's own, which is the book that I was talking about earlier. A room with a view uh, came out in 1985. It was directed by James Ivory, and it stars uh, Helena Bonham Carter, and Julia Sands, and Maggie Smith. And those are the only names that, that I'm going to say right now because if you happen to watch this movie, uh, I think a big surprise is like all these famous faces popping up in in different places throughout. And because it came out in 1985, everybody's so young. It's so crazy to see Helena Bonham Bonham Carter at at that age. I don't know. I should have done the math on this to see how old she was exactly when they were filming this, but it looks like she's, you know, 18 or 19 or something like that. And I've never seen her in anything, you know, at at that stage in her career. Um, So 
for me, it was notable, you know, on that level. I was not a big fan of this movie. Um, my wife was reading the book and, and uh, seemed to be pleased with the adaptation, I think, uh, you know, the accuracy of it. For the most part, there were some some changes here and there that she was telling me about. But, but I think she, she enjoyed the movie a little bit more than I did. And maybe I would have enjoyed it as well if I had read the book. But um, yeah, I kind of found it to be like a little stuffy, a little, you know, kind of like, unfortunately, it, it fell into like, for me, the, uh, you know, a lot of the, the tropes that you hear about, like these sort of uh, period dramas and stuff, um, the, especially the Merchant Ivory movies, which I had never seen any of them. I'm just now looking at, at James Ivory's filmography as a director, and he, he did movies like uh, Howard's End and the, Rem- uh, the Remains of the Day and Surviving Picasso and, and uh, let's see, what else? Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. I don't know if, if any of these are ringing any bells to anybody, but they, they seemed, uh, you know, like big deals at the time. And, and, um, a room with a view was actually nominated for like a ton of Oscars. I think eight Academy Awards, including best picture. And it ended up winning for best screenplay, uh, best art direction and best costume design. So going into it, I, I sort of, I guess that sort of like bolstered my expectations a little bit, but it's, it's basically this story about this young woman who, um, goes out on, kind of like a, a travel vacation and has her uh, cousin accompany her as like a chaperone. And she meets this guy who's, you know, sort of rash and impulsive. And then she ends up going back to her. Uh, th- that's in Italy. And then she ends up going back to England and and uh, has a relationship with this guy who's a little bit more uptight. It's, it's sort of like Brooklyn, the um, uh, Saoirse Ronan movie. If you remember that film from a few years ago, it's, it's that kind of uh, template, I guess. Um, and I love Brooklyn. I, I'm, I like movies like that mostly. Um, but this one, uh, a room with a view, I was just not a big fan of. I'm curious for you guys though, because this was my first merchant ivory movie. Um, I'm wondering if you guys have any more familiarity with those films than I do. Is this, has anybody, uh, sort of carved through some of the filmography of, uh, of James Ivory by any chance? I just want to, um, uh, chime in and say that I, I both read a room with a view and watched this film. And I also don't really remember much of it, but I do remember Helena Bonham Carter being really good and also very young. And I did like the sort of sun dappled, dreamy, um, vi- like visuals that James Ivory brought to the movie. But otherwise, mm-hmm. A Room with a View wasn't my favorite book. Neither was the movie. I think I also just found it not like generally forgettable. But um, Helena Bonham Carter, very good. Yeah, I, I enjoyed her uh, for sure. I think she was like the the standout performer uh, for me. Anyway, Jacob, did you say that these are these movies are sleepy? Is Merchant, that right? Merchant Ivory movies are sleepy. They are cinematic sleeping pills. I know they get all the Oscars. <laughs> I know they get all these raves. They have they have a certain amount of critical uh, weight around the decades they they've existed. Uh, but everyone I've tried has bored me to tears, and I like boring shit. So this is. I, I cannot recommend anybody watch Merchant Ivory films, even though I know that makes me a total trog- troglodyte for saying such a thing. <laughs> well, yeah, if you uh, if you don't want to be a troglodyte, if you want to try for yourself, A Room with a View is available on HBO Max if you want to check that out. Oh, one more thing um, I want to say. I will yes. say, um, I haven't seen the film <laughs> The Remains of the Day, but the book is really, really excellent. Uh, so I recommend reading the book at least if you don't want okay. to delve into the James Ivory movie <laughs> all right uh i also watched uh the five bloods finally i caught up with spike lee's newest movie which is on or actually i don't think it's his newest movie anymore because he directed uh what was it uh, david burns american utopia for hbo or 
want to say it was HBO. Maybe it's on HBO Max. I don't remember which official, you know, part of the AT&T conglomerate that was uh, movie was assigned to. But um, in any case, uh, The Five Bloods came out in 2020. It's on Netflix right now. Um, man, what a movie. I, I really, really enjoyed this. It's uh, it's long. It's like two and a half hours or something. But um, I I was I did not feel the length when I was watching it. I, I thought uh, it was really engrossing. There is like some uh, there's a scene and I, I hesitate. I'm not even going to say actually what the scene is, but um, there's a scene sort of like in the, the last last act of the movie, I guess, that is um, some of the most tense filmmaking I've seen in a long, long time. Um, Jonathan Majors, I somehow missed the fact that Jonathan Majors was in this movie. I, I knew that it was like a movie about old guys going back to Vietnam. And it's like Delroy Lindo. He's like the the standout performer in this one like everybody i remember was talking about you know just go ahead and give him the oscar and i i agree with that he was like tremendous in this movie um clark peters from the wire uh isaiah woodlock jr some of these other uh people are, are sort of like the the older performers who are um you know playing the lead characters in this movie and then chadwick boseman plays a guy who um you know was was uh their uh, soldier compatriot back in you know in the 1970s or, or late 60s um and I, I didn't realize that Jonathan Majors, who is the star of uh, Love, uh, Lovecraft Country and um, The Last Black Man in San, in San Francisco, was in this movie as well. And he is really, really good in it. And just watching him, you know, across in, in I've only seen him in really those three things, but uh, watching him, you know, in, in, over the course of the past couple of years, um, I just can't wait to see more from him as a performer. I really, really like what he does. And I think he's just got like this really um, magnetic screen performance or screen presence rather. Um, and Chadwick Boseman is really good in this movie. Everybody is like the performances are, are all very, very solid here. Um, I still need, I, I have it bookmarked to go back and listen to uh, HT's uh, review of the five bloods on, on this podcast. Um, Cause I, <laughs> I remember like hosting an episode of the water cooler and, and listening to you talk about the movie, but I didn't quite fully understand what you were talking about because I hadn't seen it yet. But now that I have, I'm, I really want to go back and uh, and listen back to that because I, I know that you you know talked a lot about like the um, the Vietnam uh, perspective and stuff, which this movie like you know pays a little bit of lip service to, and and it feels like the most um, the movie that is the most interested in multiple perspectives in Vietnam out of any of out of any Vietnam War movie that I've seen. But I still think there's a lot of room for you know to to widen that perspective even further on the vietnamese side um and maybe that's part of what you were talking about hc so oh, yeah, I, I look forward to that's exactly what i was talking back. about but yes um but man yeah just uh really really solid stuff and i think you know this is one of my favorite movies of 2020 so far so i, I think uh if you have not made the time to watch the five bloods it's really really great and i love the the stuff you know not to to go too in depth here, but I, I love the stuff that Spike Lee has been doing in his recent movies. And, and, um, I really need to go back and watch a lot of his earlier stuff too. Cause I've, I've only seen probably, I don't know, six or seven Spike Lee movies or something, but, um, in recently, it seems like with black Klansman, especially, and, and this movie, um, he's been, you know, inserting these like real life, um, uh, like basically pausing the movie to sort of present these sort of like history lessons to the audience. And there's this moment in this movie where he talks about, um, the one of the first Americans killed in the uh god what was it? the Boston massacre was a black guy and I had no idea about that and he like uh Spike Lee like basically pauses the movie and and says yeah this is the thing that happened and like puts the a picture of the guy and like um you know sort of you know takes the moment takes the opportunity he knows that this movie is going to be 
seen by a lot of people and and that that is not a very widely known fact and he it really like hammers home a lot of the thematic elements that Chadwick Boseman's character is talking about in the movie um so it's not just like uh it's not just pontificating for pontificating's sake it's it's like actually um you know thematically relevant and and it is also instructive and and educational and informative so uh i, I love stuff like that i love learning you know at the feet of spike lee so have, um, um, ben have you watched american utopia yet no i haven't i, have uh, not seen that I strongly recommend you watch that because he does something like that in that and it's like one of the best things i've i've like ever seen like put on film it's gonna like wow it'll, it's gonna like blow you away trust me just watch. okay you'll know, it, you'll know it when it happens too so, so I, here's the thing and and this is a a divergence and and a a, a rabbit hole or whatever you want to call it um i'm going off the off topic here for just a second chris but i tried watching stop making sense recently which is the uh jonathan demi uh concert film involving the talking heads which is david burns right. uh, band and i was not really a huge fan of the music so i i just like turned the movie off half- halfway through even though i know it's like one of the great concert films of all time it has this huge you know uh very very um bolstered reputation uh do you think that as somebody who wasn't you know crazy about and, and i'm like wildly unfamiliar with the talking heads music i have not heard it at, outside of <laughs> stop, uh, stop making sense. So do you think that somebody who has like that level of unfamiliarity with uh, David Byrne and his musical stylings will still appreciate American Utopia? Yeah, I, I, I do because I'm sort of in the same, but I don't really like, I don't love the talking head. I think I like like one or two talking head songs and the others I'm just like, Oh, I don't, I don't like this. So even if you don't love their music i do think you're gonna get something about this just from the way it's made and uh, you know the uh it's you know spike lee directs the hell out of this movie it's in i i forget i don't have the exact numbers in front of me but i remember when i was writing my review i, I researched this and like i think he had like something like 27 editors working on it so it's like wow it's like it the movie it's not like you know i i look i love that the the film version of hamilton i i, I think it's great but if you watch Hamilton and then you watch this, it makes you realize how amateurish <laughs> Hamilton looks because it, this looks like a movie. Like it, it's just constantly cutting all over the place and there's all these different angles and all these different close-ups, And it, it's, you know, so like, even if you don't love the music, I think you're going to really appreciate the, the filmmaking on display. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, I, I was planning on skipping that, but now I'm going to add it to my list. So uh, thank you for the, uh, the uh, recommendation. All right. So that's all I have to say about uh, The Five Bloods, which is really great. And I, I encourage everybody to watch it. And then finally, I watched uh, The Way I See It, which I saw on Peacock. You might actually have seen it on MSNBC. It was uh, it premiered at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival and then has sort of been on TV a couple times. And then now, uh, as of right now, anyway, it lives on Peacock. This is a documentary that was directed by uh, Don Porter, and it follows Pete Souza, who is or was the chief official White House photographer under Barack Obama. And he, uh, I think, also had that same title under Ronald Reagan. Um, if not that same exact title, he was like one of the, the main photographers in the Reagan administration. And um, I watched this because the, you know, the presidential election, uh, despite what the current president says, is over and uh, the current president is going to be leaving office soon. So I finally, you know, allowed myself to 
look back a little bit into the Obama era. Um, it's just been too sort of fraught for me to to really uh, look backwards too much with the looming threat of four more years of, of Trump being a very real possibility until recently. So I finally was like, okay, now that I can sort of kind of breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, a sigh of relief I want to watch The Way I See It, which is a, a movie that follows this photographer around and um, it, it basically is like a a movie version of a talk that he gives where he goes through a lot of the photos that he took uh, during the administration. And um, it really is just, uh, you know, it's not the most um, dynamic movie that I've ever seen uh, or, or sort of like informative documentary, but it's just, it's so nice to watch a movie that has that that puts somebody in the center of the frame in that uh that actually cares about american lives and <laughs> it's it, just like the uh level of empathy and compassion and just human emotion that uh barack obama displayed when he was in office i guess you know regardless of what you think about his politics um it, it is night and day uh, compared to what you know we've had over the past 4 years and just like watching the way I see it and, and seeing a lot of these, these big moments uh, and small moments too, moments that like really only this photographer was able to capture um, because he had such, such access. Uh, it just, it draws such a, a, uh, a line in the sand between, you know, th- these two administrations in a way that like, you know, intellectually, like uh, we all know how different it is and, and has been, but like seeing it and, and just trying to imagine uh, Trump doing, you know, half of the things, uh, any of the things that are on display in this documentary, um, it just, it sort of like brings, uh, it, it brings it all crashing into reality in a way that I have not allowed myself to, to let it because I've been sort of closed off over the past four years. So, uh, I found it to be a cathartic experience, um, a slightly hopeful one, a little bit, uh, you know, it, a lot of mixed emotions uh, watching the way I see it. So um, it, it's not like the most formally interesting thing, um, but I, I think it is very effective at getting its message across. And uh, yeah, I, I think it, it's definitely, it's worth watching if you um, if you want to know like what the, uh, what the person holding the office of the president of the United States should be doing in terms of like, the bare minimum of minimum of like modeling basic human decency. Um, I guess just as a quick uh, aside, if anybody out there has any recommendations for um, a a level headed uh, critique of the Obama uh, the Obama administration and and those years um, in terms of policies and any of that stuff, I would love to read that. So if anybody like listening to this is like, oh yeah, I follow this person who wrote this great thing that I read, you know, X number of months or years ago, and, and this exactly t- you know covers what you're talking about. Please tweet that to me, email it to me, whatever you need to do, because um, I would love to read that. I, I have not, you know, I feel like sort of embarrassed to say, but like. I feel like I was uh, only politically activated in a serious way after the 2016 election. And I feel like a lot of people are probably in in my same boat there. So I have not like um, done like a deep dive into the, uh, the critiques and failings of the Obama administration in a way that I should have. And this movie does not have any time for that. It is not interested in, in critiquing really any of the decisions that he made at all. So I, I want to just like educate myself a little bit and know about that. So if anybody out there listening 
has a, an article that might uh, be able to help me out in that regard that isn't, you know, just like, uh, th- that seems level-headed. I would love to read it. So uh, that is my my uh, uh, plea to you, the listener. Uh, okay, let's move on into what we've been eating. Brad, what crazy things have you been eating recently? Nothing too crazy this week. Um, I mentioned the the grocery store Aldi's uh, in our last episode, and they I mentioned that they have some cool things that are unique to them uh, from time to time. And one of the things um, that I uh, learned about recently was they had a couple different loaves of croissant bread. That is a loaf of bread, but it is essentially a, a, a large sliced up croissant in cut up into slices. And they had uh, a regular one that was just a buttery croissant. And then they had another one that was a cinnamon one. And this bread is a game changer because obviously croissants are great. Um, but with this, like you can use it to have, you know, um, make a sandwich or, you know, use it for, for breakfast toast to have with eggs on it uh, and what have you. And it's just, it, it's so much more flavorful than, like any other bread that I've ever, you know, toasted or, or used for sandwiches or anything like that. And it's just, uh, especially when you put it in the toaster, it's so flaky and crispy and just uh, absolutely delicious. Unfortunately, it seems like it's not uh, a regular thing that they're going to to have unless they decide to bring it back because they all has these things where they only have them for like a limited time. Uh, I think they're called they're like their favorite finds or something like that. And so it was there. I, I, I was lucky enough to find literally the last two loaves of this kind of bread at my local Aldi. And I haven't seen it there uh, since I picked it up last week. So it's uh, it's phenomenal. If you happen to find it at Aldi, I would recommend picking it up because it's just it's so good. I, I, I wish that I could get this uh, more often. And I know you, you might be sitting there saying, Brad, you idiot, just go get croissants and do the same thing. But they don't really make croissants like this size in a way that you can slice it into uh, bread unless there's some kind of, you know, really nice French bakery somewhere like, you know, in Chicago or something that I, uh, I'm i not aware of. Because otherwise, this this was the only way for me to get get a croissant like this. And I'm disappointed that it is gone. Man, that sounds pretty good. And I, I just looked it up. I was not familiar with Aldi, but I just looked it up. And there's one that's like five miles away from my house. So I might have to check that out. And they're very cheap, too, which is great. Mm, Brad, I don't know if this will be the exact same thing, but have you tried brioche? It's- yes, I have tried. Bri- I, I do. I do like brioche. Um, And it's uh, I would say it's, it's probably my s- second favorite like bread that I normally use for a sandwich. I, I usually prefer ciabatta buns for sandwiches. Um, but, but yes, it, it's, it's very, uh, soft like croissants are, but there's, there's something about the, the flakiness and how it toasts, uh, in, in a toaster that is, um, just, just better than brioche bread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. What else have you been eating, Brad? Uh, and then I got, uh, my hands on this new thing that's called cinnamon toast crunch cinnadust, which is basically the, 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 the seasoning, uh, sugar cinnamon dust that they put on cinnamon toast crunch, but it's in a little uh, plastic container that you can shake out onto toast or ice cream or whatever you want to put uh, cinnamon toast crunch uh, dust on. And so when I was a kid, actually, my, my mom introduced me to um, a, a not so healthy breakfast, but a delicious one nonetheless, where you would just get toast and put some butter on it and sprinkle a little bit of cinnamon and sugar on it. And so this is essentially the easier way to do that because it has just the essentially a perfect mix of cinnamon and sugar that you can sprinkle on it. And so I did this actually with the croissant toast and that made it even better. 
Um, but yeah, this is this is really good. I haven't put it on ice cream or anything like that yet, so I'm still you know figuring out just the the things that work w- best with it. But uh, if you want to try this, you can get it. It's it's only available at Sam's Club, so that's where you're going to have to go to pick it up. Brad, I have to ask, what is the difference between doing that and and then just mixing cinnamon and sugar together? It's just like the fact that there's a, one step removed off of your plate, like it's a little bit easier. You don't have to actually do the mixing yourself or or does it like taste noticeably different than that combination? I've I've never gone out of my way to actually make my own mixture of cinnamon and sugar, but I, I for me, I would imagine that probably the difference is just the cinnamon toast crunch just they have their formula down to you know a science so they know exactly what the right ratio is of cinnamon and sugar to make it taste like cinnamon toast crunch and Mm -hmm. i don't think that i could probably replicate that as easily even if i just shook up some cinnamon and sugar in my you know my own (laughs) you know container so yeah and and plus you know it's capitalism and branding (laughs) yeah fair enough okay Uh, all right, let's move into what we've been playing. Jacob, it sounds like you've had a, a, an exciting little run of playing some stuff recently. Uh, yes, I, I bought a PlayStation 5. It was not planned. Uh, some friends of mine over-pre-ordered and were selling at cost their excess PlayStation 5s to friends. And even though I'm normally not an early adopter, I like to you know wait towards a, a more stable library of games, you know, make sure all the technical updates have gone through. I I broke... You know, I'm I'm doing okay right now. We we have some, we have some money in savings, <laughs> so we took some of it out. My wife and I we bought a PlayStation Five, and I've been enjoying it very very much. Uh, any before I dive into the games, do any of you guys have questions about the PlayStation Five? Uh, uh, anything I can help you out with? Was it worth picking I up for you a, or not? I heard it's a big boy. It's very large. It is the largest video game console I've ever seen. It is shaped like a modern art museum in San Francisco. <laughs> it's really like how it looks, actually, even though it's controversial. Uh, but in terms of design, it is a very large, very sexy machine. It definitely, <laughs> it's very different from the very compact, minimalistic uh, new Xbox. It, it definitely wants to be flashy. And I'll admit that once it's set in my home entertainment station, it looks really nice. So that's that was my question, Jacob. Like, how um, because it's so big, it seems like it wouldn't really be safe to put it in, you know, like a a drawer or in like a in a home entertainment system in the same way that you might have been able to with some other previous consoles. Does it feel like it's getting enough, you know, <laughs> whatever air to it and all of that kind of stuff, like the circulation and everything? Because it's so massive. Uh, mine is so far so good. It has not shown any heat. It runs very smoothly for me so far. It, it doesn't even make a peep so far with, with playing, which is a far cry from a PlayStation 4, which was a very noisy machine. And Yeah, mine is like, my PS4 is just so loud. I, I try to give it as much air as possible, but it's just, it's like uh, you can feel it working you know, pretty much every time you turn it on. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to everybody's home entertainment system, but mine is open enough. The, the, the cubes the cube spaces in which I place my uh, my my consoles and my players are wide enough that so far so good uh, like I said you should definitely do some measurements uh, figure out what will be best for you because it is a large console it is significantly larger than the PlayStation 4 uh, all right so tell me about the games games uh, like all game launches the there's not a whole a whole large number of titles to launch with it you can play any PS4 games on it uh, which is you know Good, because, because there's not enough PlayStation 5 games. But I've been playing uh, Demon's Souls to start. Demon's Souls is a strange history because it was a a barely released in the U.S. Uh, cult favorite from Japan, uh, released in PlayStation 3 in 2009. And 
the makers of that game went on to make uh, Dark Souls and Bloodborne and Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, which are among the most popular and beloved games of the past decade. And they have a reputation of making very difficult punishing games that uh, are video video games that like made for like serious video gamers, people who don't play casually. Like, you got to commit to them and play them and they will challenge you in ways that some people don't find fun but i love those other games but i never played demon soul since it was barely released here and it's strange that this cult item this strange underseen game has been remade into a launch title for the ps5 which is a sign of how things have changed for, for this uh for this genre of games they're called uh, the souls like games as they're called and it's a dark fantasy horror game where you're wandering through a nightmarish apocalyptic fantasy world as a knight or a warrior and trying to fight monsters and uh, puzzle together a very opaque uh, storyline and it may be the best looking video game i've ever played it is gorgeous it is it runs at 60 frames per second uh it is smooth the lighting is incredible there's no loading times i mean i've played previous games from the same from the uh, people made the original version of this and you know there's loading screens so to play the remake which is from a different company uh but being very faithful to the original game in terms of structure to die and be back in it immediately with no loading screens it's remarkable it is it changes the way the game plays in a lot of ways because a game like this that is so difficult and so deliberately punishing if you die there's that you know that 20 30 second wait of load screen and you get frustrated whereas in this there's not that you you, you die and you're back at it so it takes this you know aggressive uh style of gameplay and removes from the big hurdles which are just the fact that the system has to chug to get you back to where you were uh, so if this sounds, if, if you're already a fan of Dark Souls or Bloodborne, which I am, and you have a PS5, this is the game to get. Uh, it is the showcase for what games can look like for a new console. Uh, I, I, I'm loving it so far. I'm taking my sweet time with it. Uh, the more accessible launch game is Spider-Man Miles Morales, which is a sequel to the Spider-Man game from two years ago. That was a PS4 exclusive. And that Spider-Man game is uh, been really remastered for PS5. So it's out there as well. This is the same map as that game. Same voice actors, except, except that instead of playing as Peter Parker, you're Miles Morales, who you may remember from Spider-Verse or from Marvel Comics. And I'm not far into it yet, but it's it's terrific. And unlike Demon Souls, it's super accessible. You can even turn on a mode where it's built for you don't so you don't take damage in fights, so you can just enjoy the story. Uh, so you can there's multiple modes like that, so you can just play it how you want to play it. And whether that's you know a, a child who needs the help or somebody who just wants to see the cool story you feel like a superhero or like me who's playing on, on one of the mid-levels where it's just challenging enough for me to have that uh have that challenge but also uh not so hard that I, i'm not getting constantly stuck and like demon souls it looks remarkable the lighting is incredible the sense of of location and space and this is not in, ter in terms of graphical jumps the playstation 5 is not as huge as like you know the PlayStation 1 to PlayStation 2 or other console jumps. But on all these games so far, there's no loading times, no slowdown. The frame rates are beautiful. It is just a sense that you get, you get the impression of the PlayStation 5, and I'm presuming Xbox Series X as well, that graphics are going to are going to get better incrementally going forward, you know, but in terms of technology, in terms of how games run, uh, that's the big difference with the PlayStation 5 and new consoles is that games run differently now. Uh, they run... Mm without any of the slowdown or pauses or jitters you expect from games before. And I'm very, very excited to see how people push that. Gotcha. Oh, and the last thing is Astro's Playroom, which is a built-in game for every PlayStation 5. It takes a character from uh, a PlayStation 4 VR game and a little cute robot. And 
makes him he seems a new mascot for PS5 almost and essentially this platforming game uh it's surprisingly long I'm, I'm about you know 45 minutes into it but it's a few hours long and there meant to be a tech showcase for the PlayStation 5 controller and it is very charming very fun very sweet little thing uh but as a tech demo it's kind of remarkable because each section of the game shows off what your controller can do and of course we've had rumble controllers you know since the 90s but the PlayStation 5 controller called the DualSense controller has haptic feedback and that means that buttons will give you resistance you know so it, so uh or certain or it'll react in different ways or rumble in really unique ways so it lets you feel things like texture and feel vibrations and patterns or if you're try- if your character's forcing against something in a game and the game wants to simulate the idea of force the, the trigger buttons will actually give pressure back at you so you got you got to push harder to fight through the trigger pu- push in order to make it happen hmm. and this game is all about showing that off and both spider-man and demon souls both use the uh, the, the haptic feedback in interesting ways, uh, but Astro's Playroom, which is it is free packaging with your system, shows what could be done in the future, and it's really exciting and cool. I mean, more so than the graphical upgrade, the controller tech here is very exciting. It suggests that video games can be very different over the next few years. That's one of my least favorite things about video games, Jacob, is like the idea of like, uh, you know, press X a million times to uh, stop this car from crashing or whatever. So I I like the idea of them potentially maybe phasing that kind of uh, whatever functionality out and like replacing it with something like just hold the button down one time. But like it's tougher to do that because of the pressure that that you're receiving in order to uh, achieve that same goal. Do you think that that kind of thing might be possible? I think so. But I also will point out that Spider-Man Miles Morales' first boss fight invo- involves a moment where you got to hit X repeatedly to hit Rhino in the face. <laughs> so now, okay. we're going away yet. Uh, but I do think that as developers grow comfortable with this tech, if, if they choose not to ignore it, it could have some really fascinating possibilities. All right. And then, uh, Brad, you've also been playing something recently too, right? Indeed, um, I have a new console of sorts as well. Um, there's a uh, a new uh, title co- coming out this week for VR that I'll uh, will briefly mention here in a second um, that I wanted to review that we've been covering for Slash Film. But in order to be able to do it, I had to uh, you know actually have a VR set. Uh, so the folks at Oculus uh, were kind enough to send me their newest Oculus Quest Two. Uh, which is their wireless uh, VR headset. Uh, doesn't require any cords to be plugged in. Does not even require uh, a PC. Um, it's a standalone headset where the the system is in the headset, and then there's there's an app you can use uh, to do certain things with it. But otherwise, you can pretty much do everything you want to from within uh, the VR headset. And so, uh, the Oculus was something that I had tried before because uh, our own Peter Soretta has one. And uh, I was able to try out things like uh, Beat Saber and Super Hot, and then I also tried out Vader Immortal uh, on an Oculus Quest at Star Wars Celebration last year, um, and it was uh, it was very cool. I was very impressed by just the the controls and the experience and how immersive it is, and so uh, I was very excited to try try this one out. Um, and so the the reason main reason that I have it is because we will have coverage coming up uh, on Thursday, November nineteenth, for Star Wars: Tales from the Galaxy's Edge. Uh, I can't say anything more than that, but uh, I've been very impressed with the Oculus Quest 2 so far and just how immersive it is as a video uh, game system. The The gameplay um, for a lot of the various games that I, I've tried on the set so far isn't quite as, uh, I guess, uh, intensive or um, 
complex as regular video games are for like Xbox or PlayStation or uh, even PC games. Um, and that's mostly because VR is still figuring itself out. It's still kind of in the nascent stages of uh, using the format to the best of its ability. But I, I will say that just the the general gameplay of VR is just very, very exciting. And it's it's weird how it changes your perspective and how the game feels and how much more exciting you know, certain moments and uh, gameplay action action is. Uh, it's just there's, there's a whole new feeling when you your entire environment around you is made up, you know, digitally uh, in, you know, in front of your eyes. And it genuinely feels like you're you're in a space like that. And so it's it can be a little bit disorienting at first because you're just in your living room and you do need to have like a, a decent amount of space to work with. But what's cool about how the the headset works is that you can actually draw the space in which that you want to play and if you happen to move anywhere near those those borders it'll like stop you and take you out of uh the game but not not necessarily abruptly um but just in a way that makes you realize that hey don't run it walk over here because you might hit this chair or something like that. i was wondering (laughs) about that i was wondering if they had something built in so it sounds like they do that's cool yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's very cool, and um, even from from like a perspective too, as a, a movie watcher, one of the cool things about it too is that it has apps for uh, Netflix and Amazon Prime and Fandango Now. Um, and I tried the apps for Netflix and Amazon Prime, and they they have their own virtual space uh, in which that you can watch the movies that are in your library or in in their streaming libraries. And so, like with Netflix, they have a um, what is essentially a virtual screening room that is like in this cabin in the mountains and it has like a couch and a fireplace and you watch the movie in front of you as if it were being projected on a wall in a virtual space. Uh, and then with Amazon Prime, they just have it. They have um, they have like the the Prime app set up in this very sort of cartoony uh, virtual environment and you can you scroll through to see what you want to watch. And then once you watch it, it puts you essentially in a, a pitch black virtual space that allows you to uh, change the orientation of where the screen is. So if you wanted to, you could like lay down on your, on your couch or on your bed and have your headset on and be, you know, looking up and the screen is essentially above you so that you can watch it, you know, uh, just like any other movie. And, uh, the resolution is good. The, the sound on the system is, is solid as well. And so if you, know, if you're ever like in a position for whatever reason where you want to watch something, but you don't want to wake up somebody in your house or, uh, you know, you don't have headphones to plug into your, your stereo system or your TV in any way using a headset like this is it's kind of a, it's a cool way to kind of just zone out and be in your own space and watch a movie without having to, you know, worry about anybody else uh, around you and disturbing them. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of cool aspects. So I'm, I've, there's plenty of things I haven't done yet. And obviously I'll, I will keep playing with it. So uh, I'm sure I will talk more in the future about other stuff that's coming because they, they have like a, a Jurassic World thing that's coming out soon. And like there's there's plenty of uh, movie based um, VR experiences that they have. But like I said, tomorrow I will be uh, have a, a review about uh, Tales from the Galaxy's Edge so that you, um, people can find out how that Star Wars VR experience is. Awesome. And you can find that at SlashFilm.com. You can find a lot of stuff that we've talked about, uh, written about at SlashFilm.com. And um, before we go today, let's go around the circle and just tell people where they can find us online. We haven't done that in a little while. So um, uh, let's go with HT. Let's start with you first. Well, you can find me online at HTranBui on Twitter, also on Instagram at HTranBui. And I'm um, going to plug my and Jacob's uh, podcast, Checking Through Time and Space, uh, which you can find at Checking Time Pod on Twitter and on Libsyn. Uh, yeah, and podcast platforms everywhere. Cool. Uh, Chris, how about you? 
Uh, I'm on Twitter at C Evangelist at 413, and I also have a podcast, although I'm kind of just on hiatus at the moment. But it's called 21st Century Spielberg, and it's out there, and you can find episodes, and eventually I'll get around to recording the final episode. Jacob, where can people find you? I regret to inform you that I'm back on Twitter, uh, at Jacob S. Hall. Oh no, Jacob, why? What have you done? I try not to look at my feed too often. I mostly use it to tweet my thoughts and look at my responses and not actually look at other people. Sorry. <laughs> but I'm being more responsible uh, about how I consume that dreaded machine. Uh, okay. Uh, all second tricky to time and space, available on iTunes and Apple and all the places you listen to your podcast. Uh, and if you want to find my Instagram, you got to search for it. Sorry. <laughs> all right, Brad, how about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. Um, it, it's a terrible website, but yeah, follow me there. And then, uh, and then I, I also have a, a podcast that I'm still doing, even though we are also kind of on hiatus, some some because of laziness, but more recently because of some technical uh, difficulties with our, our server provider. But we're working on fixing that and kind of uh, revamping so that we can get back to recording regular episodes. Um, it's, it's been kind of lame this year anyway, with, you know, no movies and theaters and whatnot, but it's something that we definitely want to, want to, uh, get back to sooner than later. So, uh, right now it's, uh, you won't be able to find it on, on iTunes because of our technical issues, but we will be back. It's still a, a thing that's alive. And so if you like my stupid podcast, um, then it, it, you don't worry, we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> All right. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And uh, speaking of podcasts, I just re- recently relaunched the Not Just New Movies podcast, which is a show that uh, my friend Tyler and I started probably 10 years ago at this point. Um, and you can find all of the back episodes and the new episodes at njnmpodcast.blogspot.com, or you can find it on, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts and all that stuff as well. Uh, so if you would like to send us feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, you can do that at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general, uh, general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review this show if you get a chance. We really appreciate you doing that, taking the time out. Uh, spread, uh, spread the word. Tell your friends about the show. And thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you guys on Friday. Not so fast, man. Oh, oh yes, Jacob. Did you, did you I, really I legitimately think... forgot. I can't believe this, but somehow I forgot. Did you think you can get away with it because Peter's not here? Is that is that what you were thinking? <laughs> no, I really forgot. But okay, no. I'm 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 in it now. I'm ready. I say something very special for all of you. This is from the gargantuan book of insult, defense, and affrontery. Sharp retorts, repost, caustic quips, implied put downs. Louis A. Safian. I have found it. The shortest chapter in the book. Only two pages <laughs> okay. long. I've skimmed over it every time I've, I've opened the book. I finally opened it on page 353. Are you ready? Yes. This is the muddleheads section. Muddleheads, a phrase we all know and use every day. <laughs> right. Muddleheads. Ben, he's so absent-minded, he went up to a horse at the racetrack and bet $5 on a bookie. <laughs> okay, all right. I like it. HT, she once fell down a flight of stairs. Landing at the bottom, she said, I wonder what all the noise was about. <laughs> I did fall down a flight of stairs once. Oh, God. <laughs> Chris, he keeps going around and around in a revolving door. He can't remember whether he's going in or coming out. <laughs> uh, Brad, a nurse showed him the triplets his wife just had given birth to and then asked, what do you think of them? Absent-mindedly, he said, I'll take the one in the middle. Mm, I, yes. <laughs> oh, Brad, you don't like the one. Okay, how do you find that one? Okay. <laughs> Brad, Brad bought a memory course but never completed it. After the eighth lesson, he left the course in the subway. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> there we go. That one was fun. That was a convincing enough performance, Brad. <laughs>